Beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me to, this morning to Psalm 25. And um, um, we're not sure when he writes it, except most commentators would agree that he writes it at the end of his life when he is, um, he's experienced much, when he's had a, a long, um, sometimes fruitful, sometimes unfruitful walk with the Lord. And here he is at really the end of his life, and he's reflecting on the things that matter the most, and he's looking at himself in, in his current condition, and he realizes that, you know, I'm really not, my life is really not what it ought to be in the Lord right now. And then he describes for us his response to his spiritual condition. So let's read this together. I, I trust that it will be beneficial to our souls. Let's stand together. We'll read Psalm 25, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to get into this text this morning. Let's read it. This is the Word of God. David writes, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Cause or consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We need you to awaken our ears and freshly affect our hearts. We need you, Lord God, to make us sensitive to your word and sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit and sensitive to your presence with your people. We need you to do that in us. God, we need you to work by your will and according to your steadfast love and your mercy, Father, to renew and rejuvenate and revive our hearts, to make our faith strong and vibrant, to make our devotion sure and undivided. God, we need you to give life to our souls. We confess to you, Lord, that our, our salvation is entirely according to your sovereign will and your sovereign power. Lord, we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We were deserving only of eternal wrath and eternal death before you. We had earned for ourselves judgment from which we could not escape. And Lord God, according to your steadfast love and your mercy, you sent your Holy Son into this world to stand as our substitute, to live the life we would not live, to live a life of righteousness and, and, and God-pleasing, to live a life that, is, that was perfect and pure in every way. And then to give himself up, to be crucified, bearing upon his own shoulders the weight of our sin, dealing with and and paying fully the guilt of our transgressions against you, rising from the dead three days later to be proven before all that he is the Son of God with power. Our salvation rests in you. It rests in Christ. It rests in the work of the Holy Spirit to renew and regenerate dead hearts and give life to souls that were perishing. We praise you for that. And yet we confess, Lord God, that even in this room, those who are Christians, even as the children of God right now, the most needful thing in our souls is for your grace, your steadfast love, and your mercy to be continually poured out upon us. Lord God, we are saints but sinners still. And we are far too easily drawn away from real life to chase after that which promises life and ends in death. Unless you shepherd our souls, unless you renew our, our souls, unless every day we are drawing grace afresh and anew from your inexhaustible fountain, Lord God, we will make a shipwreck of our lives. And so we need you. And so I'm praying you will draw near to us right now. And I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that, Father, you would, you would give me the unction of the Spirit so that I would preach your truth faithfully and accurately and with power and that there will not be a single heart that is unaffected in this room today. Bring your truth to bear on our souls with power and, and Lord God, with gravity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we get into this text today, I... I want to remind you of Lowell Yoder's description of revival that we talked about last week, right? Lowell Yoder, that very well-known pastor, right? He said, in times of revival, God manifests 
his glorious presence in the midst of his people. The awesome sense of his holiness produces overwhelming conviction of sinfulness, leading to deep repentance. The greater measure of the Spirit rejuvenates an authentic church. And everywhere there is bountiful praise and worship, hunger for truth, and a wholehearted service to God, overflowing into powerful evangelization of the world. Based upon your response last week and, and throughout really this week, as I've heard from you, I am I'm convinced, I'm expectantly hoping that this is the, the very real desire of our hearts, beloved. And, and because that's so, before we jump into Mark, I wanted us to take a moment this morning to look at Psalm 25, written by King David. And as I said earlier, we're not sure when he composed this prayer, but most of the commentators agree that he did it when he was older. He did it when he was, you know, reflecting on his life with the Lord from the perspective of a seasoned saint who had come to fully understand what is of greatest value and what's of eternal worth, who had come to understand where he had really blown it and where God had been incredibly gracious, who had come to understand where he had been weak and God had given him strength, who had come to understand where life was ebbing from his soul and God had renewed that spiritual life. And so, as we look at this psalm, we need to understand the perspective from which David writes it. Think about what we just read, okay? Think about what we just read a moment ago. David writes this psalm really in a needy and in a spiritually sort of troubled state. Repeatedly notice that he describes himself with terms and phrases that reveal he's out of sorts spiritually. He's out of sorts spiritually. That he's, he's heavy of heart. And he needs the Lord to lift him out of this grievous condition. He mentions how, for instance, he is facing enemies that seek to put him to shame, right? He's facing enemies that are seeking to put him to shame. And the idea there being that, that enemies that are trying to derail his soul, enemies that are trying to cause his life and his faith to fall short of the full experience of the true love and active blessing of being a child of God. To make him ashamed. To make him discontent. He's facing enemies that seek to undermine his fruitfulness and make him dissatisfied in the Lord. Now some of those enemies are external, right? Some of those enemies are, are circumstances. Some of those enemies are the temptations to sin that he still faces. Some of those enemies are, are people, right? Enemies of the Lord, enemies of, of David, right? Some of them are external. But it's not just external opposition he's dealing with. In this psalm, beloved, David speaks repeatedly of his own sin, doesn't he? Doesn't he? The sins of his youth, he mentions. He mentions his current transgressions, his guilt before the Lord. He describes his spiritual condition as being, you know, as being one in which his feet are caught in a net. His feet are caught in a net. And he can't extricate himself. He can't disentangle himself. He's held fast 
and he can't get himself free. He feels lonely and afflicted. That is, alone and lacking in joy. Not that he's not jovial. Not that he's not maybe enjoying life, but the, the, the joy of the Lord is not what it once was. He speaks of how the troubles of his heart are enlarged, right? He's distressed in his soul. He does not want to be put to shame in his walk with the Lord. But here is David, keenly aware that his spiritual condition is not what it once was. And it's not what it should be. In short, David knows he needs revival. He knows he needs refreshing. He knows he needs renewal of his soul. Can I tell you one of the things that I love about this psalm, and we'll see it as we go through it, is the refreshing honesty of David. David's not putting on spiritual airs here. David is not saying, well, you know, I've been known as the sweet singer of Israel. My reputation is, you know, of that sensitive warrior that, that loves God with all of his soul and fights the enemies of God with the fury of his steel. Instead, he's willing to be honest. He's willing to examine himself and be real with him, be real with himself, you know? We often, you know, we honor those people. We talk well about people that are real. He's real. That's a real one, right? David's a real one here. And I love that about him. He's very open throughout the entirety of this psalm to confess his current condition and yet his hope for something better, right? And so in this, it's in this condition that David pours his heart out to the Lord. And he's not simply, praise God, resigned to spiritual depression and heaviness of heart. He's not resigned to just joyless living and joyless worship and, and doing his duty because duty calls, right? No way. He pleads. He prays with the Lord for something better. He doesn't look for solutions to his current spiritual situation from any other source. He's not trying to, 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 to deal with this stuff through, say, counseling or philosophy or anything else. You don't see David, you know, looking for some other thing that can deliver him. Instead, he resolves to draw near to the Lord alone, to the one who alone can pull his feet out of the net, who can guard his soul and deliver him from this spiritual malaise. And so what we find in this psalm, and I'm not sure David intended this necessarily, but what we find in this psalm really are signposts along the way to renewal and refreshment in the Lord. That's what we see here. And that's why we're looking at it this morning. In fact, maybe the better title for this sermon would have been signposts on the way to renewal and refreshment in the Lord. So if you feel so inclined, you can edit my title and put that in there instead. So let's look at this. And let's see what we can glean here from this psalm. And the first thing I want us to notice, beloved, the first thing that we need to see in David is this certain resolve that he has, this immediate resolve that we see from him. And it's so good. Look at how he begins this psalm. He says, to you, O Lord... I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. 
Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Right? So check this out. Where can David look for what he desperately needs? Where does he find it? Well, it's only one place, right? In the Lord alone. You see that, right? In this phrase that he uses here, I lift up my soul. Beloved, I want us to feel the weight of what David is saying here. It is an expression. It's an expression of speech that, it, that indicates the very thing that, that Boots was praying about before I was preaching. It indicates this, this full surrender, this full submission, this whole soul devotion and worship of the Lord. In fact, the idea is that, that, that it's an expression of exclusive hope in him alone. So here's the picture. Here's David in a spiritually depressed state. Here's David dealing with the fact that his soul's not, you know, not where it ought to be, not where it's been, not where it ought to be. And, and recognizing that, right, rather than hiding from the Lord, rather than, than trying to excuse his spiritual condition, instead he just says, Lord, I lift up my soul to you. It's a picture of David lifting up his soul, presenting himself to Almighty God with outstretched hands and with an earnest heart, presenting himself unreservedly to the Lord with nothing held back, nothing kept secret, and nothing off limits. I'm going to say that again. Nothing held back. Nothing kept secret. Nothing off limits. That's the way he presents himself to the Lord. Alexander McLaren said of this, the very nature of such aspiration after God, listen to him now, the very nature of such aspiration after God demands that it shall be exclusive. It's all in or not at all. That is the requirement of true devotion. I'm going to say it again. The very nature of such aspiration after God demands that it shall be exclusive. It's all in or not at all. That's the requirement of true devotion. David resolves here, doesn't he, to put his full devotion and his whole trust in the Lord alone, not in himself, not in changing circumstances, if he could change or manipulate them, not in, you know, any other creature, human being or otherwise, but in God alone. In God alone. I trust you. I lift up my soul to you. You're it. You're my only hope. In other words, I want us to see here, David, you know, here's the beautiful thing about David. David had no reservations about God's character. He had no reservations about God's power or his, about, or, or his commands or his promises. And he had no illusion about where he must look for life. And so he says, I'm presenting myself to you, Lord, I am waiting on you. I want to talk about that for a moment, okay? When we think of that word wait, lots of times we think of it in passive terms, don't we? Don't we? Like you order a pizza from Domino's and what do you do? 
you wait till they show up. Or I go with, you know, Cammy and Gretchen shopping. And I just go out and sit on the bench and watch other poor souls like myself doing the exact same thing who have women in their lives, right? That's not the idea here. The idea of this word, waiting, wait on the Lord, this, this concept of waiting on the Lord, I want us to understand it is not an idle thing. In fact, this word wait that is translated here in, the, in, in this text several times, it carries the idea of being bound together with someone, okay? The idea of being, of being intertwined with another person, okay? In other words, here's the idea. To wait on the Lord it, it carries the concept of resolving to be intertwined with him, to be sensitive to his presence, to be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to be, to be expectantly preparing yourself for the visitation of God by his word and by his spirit. It's not just sitting around doing nothing. It's not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs. The idea of waiting on the Lord is that you focus yourself upon him with thanksgiving and praise, and you bind yourself to him as he has bound himself to you, and you expect him. You are bound to him. You're looking for him. You're intertwined with him, expecting him to faithfully move and work in your life for your spiritual good. Because that's what he does for his people. And the fact that David expected this very thing, you can see in verses 15 and 16. Look at him with me. Look at him with me. David says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. My focus is on him. Laser lock, right? For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Then he says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and I am afflicted. Here's what David is saying, man. When I put my focus entirely and firmly and unreservedly on the Lord God himself, this is what I expect, that God will and God, that God can and that God will pluck my feet out of the net. That is, he will rescue me from my spiritually troubled state and from my spiritual malaise. God will do it. God will do it. He will act for me. In fact, his certain hope is this, that God will indeed turn to him and be gracious to him yet again, just as he has been in the past. That God will turn to him in his need and God will be gracious to David right when he needs it, okay? As he desperately needs it. In fact, what David is saying in essence here is this. He says, Lord, Basically, what he's saying is, I know that you will not fail me or anybody who puts their full devotion and trust in you. I know you won't do that. That is not in your character to do. Now, the wantonly treacherous, that's a, a, a phrase that means those who are faithless and deceitful toward God. Those that are faithless and deceitful towards God, they have no such hope. They will be ashamed. But David's refrain of his heart is, you will deliver those who look to you in expectancy and hope. You will not put them to shame. They will not fall short of the joy and the blessing of life in you. David is resolved. I lift up my, my soul. In you alone I trust. That's where it's got to begin. That's the very first signpost on the path 
to renewal and restoration and revival. That's where it starts. Now I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to, to be a David here and be honest. Can we honestly say, can I honestly say with David, Lord, to you alone I lift up my soul. To you I present my soul alone. I present my very being. That's got to be the very heart of it all. That's got to be the very beginning. God's my treasure. He's my supreme desire. He's not one among many. I present myself entirely to him. Can we say that? Can you say that? Or do you have other lords, other gods, little l, little g, competing in your life for the allegiance of your heart and you're trying to split it between God and those little gods and the Lord and those little lords? See, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to be honest about that. We think to ourselves, and we've been conditioned to believe, well, I go to church, I give up my Sunday mornings, if I'm, you know, being obedient to Scripture, I give my, you know, my tithe. I, 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 I attend, you know, on occasion when I can, other functions of the church. So therefore, I can say, God is my God, the Lord is my Lord. But on an everyday basis, is that true? Is it true? Selective Sabbath submission to the Lord is not submission to the Lord. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Can we say, in God alone I trust for all that I need for my soul's well-being? Or if I'm honest, is my trust divided and my confidence divided among many things? Well, yes, I trust in the Lord as long as I have this certain level in my bank account. It makes it easy for me then to trust in the Lord. It helps my faith. Yeah, ow, I hope it hurts. Do I say, well, I trust in the Lord as long as my circumstances are these, or as long as my health is this, or as long as my kids are like that, I trust in the Lord. It is so essential, and I hope you're getting the point, it is so essential that God hold primacy in our souls, in our hearts, that we trust him, that he is our chief object, the only object of our worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's it. Because I'm going to tell you something. Here's an eternal axiom. What's that mean? A self-evident, inescapable truth. Hear me when I say this. What men and women put their trust and their confidence in, what they lift their souls to serve and honor, it will either be for their eternal joy or their eternal shame, nothing else. And therefore, beloved, we need to choose wisely, don't we? Don't we? I read this and I'm like, I have to ask myself, I hope you are too, am I this God-saturated? Am I this, this God-focused? Am I truly resolved in all things to lift my soul only to the Lord and to trust in Him alone? That's not, those are not small questions, man. Those are, those are not insignificant questions. In fact, I would say this, that without that desire in our hearts, listen to me, revival and renewal simply cannot and will not happen. It's not going to happen. Half-hearted desire. Half-hearted desire. God does not honor. Phillips Brooks said this, 
In fact, just listen to these words. He said, the great danger facing all of us is not that we're just going to make an absolute failure of our lives or that we'll become outright vicious or that we will be terribly unhappy or even that we shall feel that life has no meaning at all. That's not the trouble. That's not the issue. He says the danger is that we may fail to perceive life's greatest meaning, fall short of its highest good, miss its highest and most abiding happiness, be unable to tender the most needed service, be unconscious of life ablaze with the light of the presence of God and be content to have it that way. That's the danger. That someday we're just going to wake up and find that we have been busy with the husks and the trappings of life. And we have really missed life for itself. For life without God, to one who has known the richness and the joy of life with him, is unthinkable. Yea, it's impossible. We need to resolve that God's going to be the supreme desire of our souls. And put to death competing desires. That was the resolve of David. And coupled with that resolve, we see in David next a longing to know God and his truth. A longing to know God and his truth. First it's, I'm going to present myself to the Lord. And then second, I want to know your truth. I want to know God, your word. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait, there's that word again, all the day long. David talks about, first, God, you've got primacy in my heart. Then he says, I want to be renewed by your word. I need to be renewed by your word. Look what he wants. He he says he wants to know here God's truth and his ways and his past. He longs to be taught by the Lord. I'm going to say something. And it might bug some of you that I'm going to say this, but it's true. This is a fundamental characteristic of the faithful and the vibrant Christian. That the word of God is life to his or her soul. That it's energizing. That it is, it is engaging. That it's captivating. That it is appealing. Listen, David wants to know God and know his truth. Here's why. Because God is the God of his salvation. His heart has been attuned now to God's word. Now here's why I'm saying that. If you don't have a desire for God's word, if you do not have a hunger to read God's word, okay? Look, I'll just put it like this. One of two things is true. If there's no desire in you to read the word of God, one of two things is true. You are either spiritually sick or you're spiritually dead. You hear me? Think about it. You know, when you get sick, one of the first things that goes away is your appetite, right? You don't really want to eat. You know, you get sick, you don't feel well, you don't want to eat. Man, the Word of God is food to your soul. Are you with me? And it's when your soul is sick, when you're not hung- is, that's when you're not hungry for the word of, God, but, word of God. But can I tell you something? The very thing that a sin-sick soul needs is the Word of God. Just like the very thing that a body that's sick needs is food. Because that's the only way you get well. That's the only way you get well, Right? hearing me? The Bible knows nothing. The Bible knows nothing of Christians who are indifferent or dismissive to the Word of God. It knows nothing of Christians who have no appetite 
for God's truth. That's something we got to deal with. That's true. Some people say, well, I just don't like to read. That doesn't get you off the hook. Does it? Does it? I'm sorry, I've read the Bible a lot. I don't find a section set that has, that's, that's heading is, for those who don't like to read. Here's, the, here's, here's what you need to do, right? I, I don't find that. If you don't like to read, start reading. I've known people who didn't like exercise. Then they started exercising. Then they really liked exercise because they were good at it. If you don't like reading the Word, if you don't, if you don't like reading, not just read, I'm not, not the Word. If you don't like reading the Word, that's a bigger problem. If you don't like reading, start reading the Word of God. I don't like reading. There's nothing good to read anymore. You with me? In fact, can I tell you what? The words that David uses here are very indicative of, of his heart, the position of his heart. It's not, notice, teach me some novel thing or some fine words or whatever. It's not that. It is, make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay? David's desire here is not just for mere intellectual head knowledge alone, which is disastrous and condemning to the human soul. That's not what he's after. He wants fuel. He wants truth that fuels his faith. He wants truth that strengthens his soul. He wants truth that commands his heart and molds his actions, right? Consider this word ways, right? Show me your way. You know what? There's a big difference between knowing somebody's ways, right, and, and knowing their actions. Isn't there? Isn't there? There's a significant difference between knowing God's acts, even his truth, and knowing his ways. Because here's the deal. Knowing somebody's ways, knowing somebody's ways is to, under, is to understand his or her mind or purpose. It's to understand them, isn't it? Isn't it? It's to understand why someone does what they do, not simply the things that they do. And David longed for that understanding. Moreover, consider this request, teach me your paths. That word path refers to, to ruts that were made by wagon wheels as they passed repeatedly over the same ground. And so what David's saying here basically is this, is like, show me those old ways, those old paths. Because God's not like man. He's not always coming up with a new, improved version of something or another. He doesn't need to because everything he does is perfect, right? And so God doesn't need to revise his word. God's truth is not novel, and it's not new. It might be new to you, but, but it's not novel or new. It's not trendy. It's not stylish. It's not popular. It's tried and true. It's solid and dependable. It's eternal and unchanging, his words are the path of authentic life. That's why you can't just hear the word of God and dismiss it. It's why you can't hear the word of God. If you do this, don't be so foolish. It's why you cannot hear the word of God and then sit in judgment on whether or not you believe that it's true. It's why you cannot hear the word of God and then determine whether or not you will be obedient to it 
as it pleases you to do so. God's word doesn't beg your validation. Are you hearing me? God's word doesn't care if you validate it or not. It stands true. And by the way, every life will validate the word of God ultimately. When David says here, lead me in your truth and teach me, his intent is clear. He wants to follow God, right? That's the idea, lead me. He knows the danger and the futility of of, of wandering aimlessly or living according to his own fallen wisdom. In fact, only God's word is dependable and firm and reliable and established, which in fact is the very root meaning of the Hebrew word for truth. Dependable, firm, reliable, and established. God's truth faith in it, obedience to it is the only thing upon which we can confidently stake our lives. David knew that. That's why he's begging for it. He knows that spiritual life comes from the word of God. The word of God gives life, right? The seed of the word of God bears fruit, right? Right? There is life, life-giving power in the word of God itself. It was true then and it's true now. And so we've got to ask ourselves, A question, do we long for the word of God like this? Do we? Do we have this kind of earnest desire to know God's ways and to be led by the Lord and to receive and and trust and obey his word? Is the cry of our hearts, make me to know your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, teach me. Is that the longing of our souls? Do we want God's word to be fruitful in our lives? Do we? Charles Spurgeon exclaimed, Oh, to have the word of Christ always dwelling inside of us. In the memory, never forgotten. In the heart, always loved. In the understanding, really grasped. And with all the powers and passions of the mind, fully submitted to its control. Again, in this psalm, David is speaking in experiential terms, not cognitive ones. The desire is not just to know God's ways, You know, his person, his truth, his commands, his paths in an intellectual way, but in a real, personal, experiential way in the warp and the woof of life. So he cries out to him, Lord, do these things in me. I I know your word is life, so bring your word to bear on my heart. Bring your word to bear in my soul, fresh and anew. God's the one that's got to do it, and he will. Watch this, watch this. David's plea here, look at it again, is for God to do these things. Make me, teach me, lead me, teach me, right? All of the, all of the objects of those verbs, that, that's God, right? I'm sorry, subjects of those verbs, that's God. God is the one who needs to make him and teach him and lead him and teach him, right? So David will lift up his soul to the Lord and he will, he will trust in the Lord. That's his part. But God's the one that's going to have to bring his mighty word to bear in David's life. And as the, God of, as the God of his salvation, David trusts he will. He trusts that he will. He pleads and he waits for God to meet the earnest longing of his heart with a new and a fresh experience of the power of his word. In fact, in this very vein, John Stott counsels us. Listen to what he says. Well, this is right at us. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Yes and amen. The word of God has to hold this kind of sway 
in our souls. It's got to bear on our lives with real weight and with real gravity. It needs to be unleashed in our lives. Or we won't be refreshed and we won't be renewed and we won't know the joy of our salvation. We just won't walk in the fullness of the life that God has won for us in Christ. And so here's David. First two signposts, right? First, he presents himself unreservedly to the Lord God. Second, Lord God, bring your word to bear in my soul. And then third, notice what it leads to. As he, he's, as he thinks about you know, his resolve to God-centeredness and this longing to know God and his truth, David is moved to confess his sin and to plead for forgiveness. To confess his sin and to plead for forgiveness. Look at it. With his eyes firmly on the holiness of God, David sees and recognizes the sin that he needs to confess. In fact, can I tell you what? I would say that David probably knows better than many that unconfessed sin in our lives makes communion with God impossible. Wouldn't you agree? You remember when he was gripped in the, in the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba, how he complained that his heart you know, was dying within him, that his bones were brittle, that there was zero communion with the Lord, Right? And look at what he says here in verses 6 and 7. He says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Look, David is conscious of his sin, right? He's conscious, first of all, of the sins and the transgressions of his youth. They've been forgiven. He's been redeemed by God, right? The sins of his youth, his transgressions of his youth, those things have been forgiven by the Lord, right? But though the Lord can forget, David can't. David can't. And I hear people many times saying that, you know, it's incumbent upon believers that we should just forget about all of our transgressions as soon as we have confessed them. And I'm not so sure that that's a good idea. I think remembering the rock from which we have been hewn and the miry clay from which we've been rescued and the sins that once owned us, I think remembering those things in order to rejoice in the freedom that God has given is a good thing. Don't remember them to heap upon yourself guilt and condemnation, but remember them so you remember what you were apart from the grace of God. That's what David does here. He's conscious of his sins. He's aware of his, his past sin. He's aware of his present sin. As we see in verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. He's talking about his guilt right now, right? Then in verses 17 and 18, he says, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. <clears throat> Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Right? What do we take from this? Here's what we take. David doesn't position himself as a victim. I'm going to say that again. David does not position himself as a victim. David does not sit there and go, oh, woe is me. If it were not for everyone and everything else and all these other circumstances, my life would be hunky-dory. But here I am, a victim. Please acknowledge my victimhood. Because victimhood allows me to do whatever I want apart from any consideration of God's holiness. Doesn't it? 
He doesn't act like a victim. In fact, here's the truth. David knows that a significant part of his heaviness of heart and his spiritual depression is his own sin. Right? Isn't that true? Yes, there are other factors. There are other enemies. But his sin is no small part of the problem. David is painfully aware of his sins. Not just in this current situation, but all the way back to his youth. And what's David's plea here? What is his plea? Well, notice that David doesn't appeal to anything in him because there's nothing in him, no track record of perfection that he can appeal to in order to receive some kind of good thing from God's hand. Is there? Is there? Nope. Instead, he says something like this. Lord, do not regard me according to my sin. Do not lay my sin to my charge. Do not enter into judgment with me for my sin. Instead, regard me according to your mercy. Regard me according to your steadfast love toward me, which you have had since eternity. That's the idea here. Remember your mercy and your love, which speak for me and not my sins, which speak against me. Don't remember me according to anything in me. Lord God, remember me according to everything that's in you. Your mercy to sinners like me. Your steadfast love to a wretch like me. Lord God, remember me like that and forgive me my sins. I want to point this out and it's important. I want you to hear me. I mean, the whole thing's been important, but I want you to hear me right now. David knows he's a sinner saved by God's grace, right? 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 He knows that he's a sinner saved by God's covenant love and his grace just like us, right? We're not saved by our own efforts, not saved by our own works. We're saved by the works of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? By grace we've been saved through the blood of Jesus poured out for us. By his righteous life, his atoning death, right? That's it. We've been redeemed because of the steadfast love of God towards us. David, same way. And he has no illusions about himself. David knows that he's a fallible man, doesn't he? He knows he's a sinner. He knows that he has sinned in the past, that he's sinning in the present, and you know what? He knows he's going to sin in the future. So he doesn't sit here and make some ridiculous vow to God. Oh God, I will never sin again if... How many times have we done something stupid like that? I'm not asking for a sign of hands, or show of hands. But have you ever... Have you ever been in a situation where you've been dealing with this besetting sin that you hate and you make a vow to the Lord, Lord, if you do X, Y, or Z, if you'll just do this, I will never commit that sin again. How long was it before you committed that sin again? How long was it? Honestly. There might be some of you that are like, never. I never went back. Well, let me tell you what. That's not because of your resolve. That's because of the grace of God. David doesn't do any of that. He has no illusions about himself. In fact, here's what David knows. He knows that the only difference between himself and the wantonly treacherous, right, the deceitful, the liars, those who will ultimately be brought to shame, is that God has been good and gracious to him when he hasn't deserved it. When God, that God has been kind to him and gracious to him and saved him when he did not deserve it, right? But this is the key. David is also aware not only was he in need of God's mercy long ago when he was just a boy, he's aware that he is continually in need of God's mercy and his steadfast love just as we are, right? 
He's well aware of his own still indwelling sin, just like we should be. He doesn't look to or exult in his past faithfulness. Let me say this again. He does not look to or exult and magnify and brag on his past faithfulness as a, an evidence of present or future obedience. Does he? Does he? And there's people that do that. Oh, well, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this for the Lord. Okay, great, wonderful. What about right now? What about right now? Where are you right now? Can I tell you what? Looking to or exalting in, you know, your appearance of present faithfulness or some future obedience, you know, that's a fool's gambit. It really is. It's a fool's gambit. I'll tell you why that is. If I'm standing right here, right here I am, standing right now in in the current condition of my life, right? And let's say I have been, I've experienced grace in the past and I've been faithful to God in the past. Great. I can point to that and it costs me nothing, right? Right? I can point to that and it costs me nothing. Oh, look at all these things that I did. And I can point to the future. And I can say all the things that I'm going to do. Again, it costs me what? Nothing. Confession, obedience, repentance, fruitfulness in the present, what? Costs me everything. Oh, you're being melodramatic. No, I'm not. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what? Follow me. Jesus isn't saying, take up a cross and wear it around your neck as a decoration. He's saying, take up the cross and die to you. David is honest here with the Lord. I mentioned that earlier. I want to mention it again. David is honest here with the Lord, and it's so essential. If we're going to really be revived, if you're going to truly be revived, if you're going to really enjoy the joy of your salvation, let me tell you what, you must be. You must be honest with God. you got to be honest before God. Real about yourself. Look, Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Right? You can't play hide or seek with God regarding your sin. You can't redefine your sin so as to not be sin and think you fool God because you don't. Part of, of the vital part of revival is plain and open honesty with God, a real and a true recognition of the ways that I have failed God. I've failed to reverence and obey Him. I've failed to honor Him with the first fruits of the whole of my life. A realization of how great my sin really, really, really is. And especially in the areas where we don't think it's a really big thing. Scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of the saints together. That's not a suggestion. That's not like a, hey, if you've got nothing else going on this Sunday, make sure you go to worship. Honor the Sabbath, Lord's Day, now, to keep it holy. It's not a suggestion. And yet, how quick are we to allow ourselves to skip the corporate worship of the people of God 
for X, Y, or Z reason and then palm it off as being no big deal. It may not be a big deal to you, but it's a very big deal to God. Read Isaiah 56. Or it's not important if I faithfully give to God. Malachi begs to differ. We need to be honest with God. Where am I stealing glory from him in my life? Where am I failing to be obedient to him because I just don't like his commands? Where is my speech improper? Where are my actions unbecoming? Let me examine myself and be honest and get it all on the table with God. Because here's the truth, beloved. Our sin, no matter what it is, and no matter how small we may consider it to be, is great when we consider against whom it is committed. Our sin is great when we consider that it's against a just and a good law. Our sin is great when we consider the ease with which we commit it. The more easily you give in to contemption, into temptation, the more corrupt is your soul. Ooh. Yeah, I did the same thing the first time I read that this week. I can't remember who said it. I wish I could. I think it was Matthew Henry. Our sin is great when we consider the price of our forgiveness, isn't it? Isn't it? And yet here's the thing. Despite the greatness of our sin, despite the greatness of our guilt, God's grace and mercy is greater still. How great is the God who can pardon our sins by the blood of Christ? How great is he? Like, listen to these words from 1 John. I'm not just going to read the ones that we always read. I'm going to read the verses around it. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. True? True. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say... We have no sin. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you sinning. Apostle John is saying. But if anyone does sin, or let's put it like this. When you sin, when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? And all we got to be is honest and forthright with the Lord. I think sometimes the reason we're left unforgiven for transgressions is because we're just not honest about them. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I remember when my kids were little, they were the master of subterfuge, man. Like, they would clearly be the one that broke the thing in the room. But they would come up with all sorts of other reasons why this thing, whatever it was, got broken. And that was always accompanied with, okay, if that's how it's going to be, and I'd take my belt off and, you know. All they had to do was be honest. 
All they had to do was be forthright. Beloved, all we've got to do is be honest with God. Be forthright. Be sincere and open with Him. And He will forgive our sins. Maybe you're sitting here and you go, I don't know, man. I'm I'm having trouble seeing sin in my life. I'm, I'm having a hard time finding sin. I think I'm doing pretty good. Ask somebody who knows you. And above that, ask God. Right? I mean, who knows you best? God. And that's why David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You ever wonder why David had to appeal to God? It's because he's the king. Who's going to tell the king? All right, here's the issues that I've seen with you over the last month, man. Nobody. Nobody but God. When you pray that, Lord, search me from a sincere heart, God will answer that prayer. God will answer that prayer, and you can confess the sins that you need to confess. Then the next signpost here is, you know, David confessed his sin because he had confidence in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He was convinced about God's character. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David was absolutely convinced about God's character. He, he knew that God could deliver him from his current state because the, the Lord is good and he's upright. He's good and he's upright. He delights to do good to his people, and, and he is upright. He is full of kindness and faithfulness to his own, right? And that's why the Lord God mercifully and patiently instructs and teaches and leads sinners in the paths of steadfast love and faithfulness. You confess your sin, and God doesn't just sit there and go, oh, okay, I heard you. God responds with goodness and uprightness. And praise God, he leads sinners. He instructs sinners in the way. And that's good news, isn't it? Because we're all sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but sinners. And he delights to lead us. He's mercifully and he patiently instructs. He teaches us. But we've got to have ears to hear, amen? He meets us at the point of our need. And that is the reason for David's confident hope of abundant spiritual life and of refreshment and revival in the Lord. And yet I want to point this out. There are two things that are required of us here, okay? Sometimes when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we act as if man, man has no responsibility. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. How does that work with God's sovereignty? Aren't they opposed to one another? Not in God's universe. What does he say here? Two things. Can you see them? Humility. We need to have humility and we must have what? The fear of the Lord. Do you see that? David says he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Then down in verse 12, look at it. David says, who is the man who fears the Lord? I'll tell you about the guy who fears the Lord. Him... 
Will he, God, instruct in the way that he should choose? His soul, the man who fears the Lord, will abide in well-being. And his offspring, the man who fears the Lord, shall, in, shall inherit the land. In fact, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Do you see that? So here it is. Here are the two twi twin traits that are necessary. The two twin traits of the godly. The twin traits of those whom God renews and refreshes and revives and upholds. Humility before God a right assessment of ourselves, a right assessment of God, and then a right assessment of ourselves before God, right? God exalted, us brought low, God trusted, self distrusted, right? Humility, and then fear of the Lord, awe. Awe at God's majesty, awe at his glory, the glad confession of his sovereign rule, reverent worship, submission to his authority, a dread of offending him, a realization of his holiness, his glory, his power, his rightful wrath that we would have endured except for his grace, a dread of dishonoring him, the fear of the Lord. Those two things, humility and, and, and the fear of the Lord, they're the marks of real and true godliness, of real and vibrant faith. Why do I say that? Here's why. And notice, you know, what David's getting at here. Look, he confesses, I need to hear your word, Lord, and I need to confess my sin to get that out of the pipeline so I can hear your word afresh and anew. And oh, by the way, I know that in order for the word of God to have its full impact on me, I must be humble and I must have your fear foremost, the fear of the Lord foremost, in my mind, right? And the reason he's saying that is this. Beloved, there's absolutely no point in hearing the instruction of the Lord if in pride, not humility, and in contempt rather than fear toward God, we've already made up our minds, I see that so often with people where, you know, they've already made up their mind. The fear of the Lord be damned. They've already made up their mind. Humility, what's that? They've already made up their mind. And then you bring the word of God to bear on the situation and their instinctual response is to have a deaf ear and act like they don't have a clue what's being said or to somehow twist it around and make it seem like you're really a mean guy because you're insisting on the word of God. You hear me? He will never have a joyful heart in God if that's you. It won't happen. Not until you repent. Not until you confess your arrogance and your pride. Not until you confess your contempt for God. Not until you get on your knees and plead with God, Lord, to you I lift up my soul. Oh God, in you I trust. Cleanse my soul. You've heard the old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Right? Without humility and the fear of the Lord, no one can be fully convinced. Unless by humility and the fear of the Lord we're committed to keeping the word of God, there is little good in pleading for his instruction. In fact, really, it's condemnation. Charles Hodge wrote regarding humility, he said, when we are really, when really weak in ourselves and then conscious of that weakness, we are in a state suited to the manifestation of the power of God. Let me say that again. When really weak in ourselves... 
And conscious of that weakness, we are in the state suited to the manifestation of the power of God. When emptied of ourselves, we are filled with God. Those who think they can change their own hearts, atone for their own sins, subdue the power of evil in their own souls or in the souls of others who feel able to sustain themselves under affliction, God leaves to their own resources. But when they feel and acknowledge their weakness... He communicates to them divine strength. Amen. We need humility. And we must possess a sincere and an earnest fear of the Lord. Albert Martin said in his book, The Forgotten Fear. Some of you have read it. He said in that book, The Forgotten Fear, talking about the fear of the Lord and its absence among the confessing people of God. He said, I believe that it is accurate to say that the fear of God, which is the soul of godliness... I believe that it's accurate to say that the fear of God is a fear that consists in all reverence and honor and all of these things in a profound measure of their exercise. It's the reaction of our minds and our souls to a sight of God in his majesty and his holiness. And then he says this, to be devoid of the fear of God is to be devoid of biblical and saving religion. Sinclair Ferguson says, A proper fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence and pleasure, of joy and awe that fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him. And it makes us happiest when we're doing what pleases him. The fear of the Lord is the result of discovering Get this now, that the God whom we once thought of with slavish, servile fear, the holy, righteous, terrifying God of just judgment and majesty is also the God who miraculously forgives us through Jesus Christ. Do you have that fear of the Lord? Do I? They're indispensable to the child of God because it's the one who is humble and it's the one who fears the Lord that David says will find strength and rest for their souls. It's them whose children will be blessed for their parents' faithfulness. And even more, he says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship of the Lord. And he makes known to them his covenant. That's the greatest blessing of all. Friendship with God. This God, this God offers to us this intimate, close communion with him, to be taken into his confidence, to be enabled to understand and know him more and more, this soul-enriching fellowship. God offers that to the humble and to those who fear him. And to claim it without those twin traits, to claim that you have friendship with God, that intimate friendship with God with those, without those twin traits, without a Real fear of the Lord is to make a false boast that is often easily unraveled. David could conceive of nothing more to be desired than this closeness with God. And so he, he makes this plea. He makes a plea for the Lord to renew and establish his heart. Look at verses 19 through 21. I'm almost done. Look what he says. He says, Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Talked about that already. But then he says, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. 
Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. The preservation of David's soul was ultimately in whose hands? Ultimately in whose hands? God's. Just like us. Right? He's the one that had to guard and preserve David. And so we see this God-centered view that captures David's attention at the end of this prayer. And the idea is something like this. Guard my soul, O God. Guard my mind and my heart and my will and my desires and my emotions. Set a watch over me. Keep me faithful. Preserve me in my faith. Be my projector in my, my protector in my refuge. Grant to me. Lord, make me to walk in integrity before you, in wholeness, and completeness, in sincerity and honesty. Make me to walk in uprightness before others, in straightness and moral righteousness. Lord God, please do this in me right now, even as I am waiting for you. Even as I am waiting for you to rain down righteousness and refreshment and revival and joy into my soul, let it start right now. Now with this, Lord God, give me integrity. Give me uprightness, even as I am waiting on you. Even as I am waiting on you. What's he praying for? He's praying, Lord, renew and reestablish my soul where it needs to be. Renew and restore my soul where it needs to be. Because I need it. And then like a good leader... David closes this psalm by expressing a desire for all the people of God. Look at it, verse 22. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. See what David's doing. David's looking at himself. He's looking at his current situation, and that is why he's praying this prayer. But David, praise God, is not self-focused and self-concerned alone. And that can easily happen to us, right? Right? He's not like that. It's the final perfect pen stroke of a man who understands that he's not the only one who needs refreshed and renewed. The whole nation does. All of them. And so David, in humility and reverence before God, is led to pray not only for himself, but also for all of God's people. I don't want this if they're not going to have it too. Renew us all, God. Refresh us all, God. Redeem us all. I want to make sure we understand that word redeem because there are two words in Hebrew that we translate in English as redeem. The first one means to redeem, to purchase as by a price, as with a price, as in the redemption of the soul from hell by the blood of Jesus, the price of his blood, right? But then there's another word for redeem. And that's the one that's used here. And it means to act in power and to release and to liberate. To release and to liberate. In this case, into a life of joy and gladness of heart and well-being and spiritual refreshment. That's the heart of David. Lord, we've been without this for too long. I've been without this for too long. The people have been out without this for too long. Lord, I'm praying for you. Please redeem your people. Please refresh your people. Please bring your life to bear in the life of your people. Please. 
David gives us here the signposts, doesn't he? These signposts on the way of revival, right? And what are they again? Well, these signposts are, one, a certain resolve to present myself unreservedly to the Lord, right? The next one is a longing to know God in His truth. The third signpost is a confession of sin and a plea for forgiveness. The fourth signpost is confidence in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Signpost number five is a plea for the Lord to renew and establish the heart. And then signpost number six is a desire for all the people of God. I'll close with this, beloved. Richard Owen Roberts Roberts says, Revival only comes when he, when God sends it. And he only sends it when his people need it. And he says, Surely we, his people, need it now. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people right now. I pray, Lord God, that we would cry out to you in earnest honesty And say, Lord, to you we lift up our souls. To you and you alone, Lord God, do we trust. You are our only hope. And we are looking to you. And Lord God, we are waiting upon you. Make us, Lord, to know your word. Make us to understand your ways. Teach us and lead us in your truth, Lord God. Restore to us the joy of salvation, please. Father, I pray you do a work in our souls by which you open our eyes to see, Father, the sins that have, you know, created a separation between us, the iniquity that we've harbored and, you know, we shouldn't. Lord God, the sin that we've covered under which we cannot prosper and that we would be honest and open with you, Lord, and 
confess our sins knowing that you delight to forgive your people. That you delight to regard your people not according to our imperfect and, and flawed track record, but Lord God, you delight to regard your people according to your steadfast love and your mercy. Lord God, I pray that you would, you would forge within our hearts a new humility, a fresh humility, Lord God, that you would, that you would bring forth in our souls a true fear of the Lord, a true fear of the Lord, that you would, Lord, our hearts wouldn't be fragmented as David prays in Psalm 86, but that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord God. That even now we would see, Father, in our lives, the first fruits of you moving in refreshment, in renewal, in revival. Father God, we would be a people of integrity and uprightness even as we wait upon you to revive our souls and to, Lord God, make, you know, make supreme the joy of our salvation in our hearts. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here. I'm thankful, Father God, for a, a like mind and a like heart. And Father, I don't even think we know, I know I don't know what all we're asking when we ask that you would fully pour, pour out the life of God in the soul of your people, but we're asking you to do it. And that, Lord God, you would so move in us, Lord, that we would be undone with the glory of your great name. And I, we would be delight in finding our lives poured out for the praise of your glory. So now, Lord, as we come and we lift our voices to you in song, as we lift our voices to you to, to sing and to pray, may you, Lord God, be pleased with the worship of your people. We love you. You're thankful, Lord God, that you have met with us this day. I pray that this time of meeting would rest with significance on our souls. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.